1: When is success not success? When you're good at what you do, you're at the top of your game, you're earning great money, and you're enjoying life. How do you know if it's time to give all that up and change your story? Many people in that situation bury their heads in the sand. The thought of changing their lives and plunging into the unknown is just too scary. Today's guest is a man who had the courage to look at his successful life and change it for something different and unknown to him. It was the right choice. He left an 11-year career as an executive and partner in the banking industry and embarked on a riskier, more fulfilling life as an entrepreneur. Today, he handles most of the business affairs and coaching for two multi-million dollar brands. I'll let him tell the story. I'm excited and honored to introduce a man who constantly inspires me and thousands of others to our show. His name is Chris Harder. Chris, welcome to Change Your Story, Change Your Life.
0: Uh, thank you, my friend. Pleasure to be on as well. I'm pretty excited.
1: I am too. I've been listening to your podcast on the money mindset, and uh, it's something that everyone should be. Should be listening to.
0: Oh, grateful to hear that.
1: Where were you born, Chris?
0: So I was born in Wisconsin. Um, I kind of grew up and down, or grew up up and down the eastern side of Wisconsin. So Door County and Green Bay and Milwaukee, back to Green Bay. And um, it wasn't until I met my wife Lori that we kind of migrated over to Minneapolis and spent oh about six years there. Great city, by the way. But we wanted warmer weather year-round. We were just done with winter. And my brother, my only sibling, uh, lived in California already. So those were the two things kind of pulling at our hearts to get us out here in California. And that's how we ended up out here the past five years.
1: Five years. What part of California?
0: We're in Santa Monica, right on the beach here.
1: Oh, nice, nice. Do you go uh, with, uh, with Lord, do you go um, rollerblading along the ocean?
0: A lot of biking, a lot of running, a lot of hiking, very little rollerblading. Matter of fact, we've even talking about uh, getting a longboard like skateboards
1: and mm. starting that.
0: Here, here's the truth. If Lori can rollerblade great. I cannot rollerblade to save my life. So that's probably why we don't take that route.
1: <laughs> I, I, don't, I wonder why. You're a very athletic guy.
0: Yeah, it's just something I never tried growing up. Um, everything else seems to come naturally. You know, surfing, you name it. No problem with balance rollerblading, I just feel like the most awkward human being on the planet. It's like like that baby giraffe getting its legs. If you've ever seen that video, that's what I look like rollerblading.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, you didn't come from a big family, did you? No. No. You mentioned that.
0: So, I've got one sibling. That's my brother, Nick. And um, we're very, very close. And I'm very close with my parents. Both my mom and dad still married. Matter of fact, they've been married for 46 years, and they split their time. They live in Wisconsin in the summer, and they come out here for the winter in order to spend as much time with us boys.
1: And what do your parents do?
0: Well, they're both retired. Uh, My dad was an engineer his whole life, uh, half for the government uh, building nuclear subs and aircraft carriers and all that cool stuff, and then half in private industry, building uh, at private shipyards and also private yachts. And then my mom, she was a social worker for a while growing up, but mainly was the woman you know, running the household, taking care of us kids, raising us boys. Uh, my dad traveled a lot for work. And so you know, my mom had to hold down the fort and, and that's a full-time job in itself, especially with my brother Nick and I. We, we weren't easy necessarily.
1: who influenced you the most when you were growing up?
0: Ooh, good question. So, you know, looking at my teen years forward, there were a lot of influencing factors. Uh, My parents, number one, they were, you know, my dad was pretty successful and always talked about success and talked about, you know, do what you want to do, follow your dreams growing up, all that fun stuff. And then a lot of the, the family friends in the neighborhood, a lot of their parents, so people that my parents hung out with, I remember they were a rather successful crowd. And there were a couple of them in particular that really rubbed off on me. I'd go over to their homes and, and they had beautiful homes and, you know, they were entrepreneurs. And, and sometimes I had more fun talking to the parents about, you know, life and business and that kind of thing than I did my, my buddies my age. And so that probably started to rub off on me a little bit. And then in my early adult years, I actually, I went to college because that's what my family wanted me to do, but all I did was party. And so I ended up getting kicked out of college after two and a half years being on academic probation every single semester because I didn't want to be there, quite honestly. Deep down, I I just, I'm not a academic when it comes to that style of learning. I am a doer. Like, I I remember I couldn't wait to be out in the real world just doing and so when I got kicked out of college, I went and I got a business selling, uh, got a job selling cars at a car dealership. And this was in Wisconsin at the time, and it was a Lincoln Mercury um, Ford dealership. And there were a couple guys there that really influenced me. You know, one guy, his name was Ron Vigil, and and he was a great businessman and great salesman, and, and taught me a lot about sales. And um, a couple other gentlemen as well, but Ron really stands out. And then ironically, I got to meet one of the people that really taught me sales and really taught me business at an early age while I was in the car business, and that was Grant Cardone. I'm not sure if you're familiar with him.
1: Oh, back, yeah, yeah. Yeah,
0: this was you know, a good 20 years ago, right? So, um, or maybe 19 years ago, he was, back then he, would, he was just a sales trainer, and he'd go around from city to city doing sales training up in front of a, a big conference room for dealerships. And that was my first time meeting him. And and the first time I remember seeing someone saying, oh, that's what I want to do. Like, I don't want to be the guy working at a job. I want to be the guy going around teaching and inspiring and doing that type of thing. Now, it took me years and years and years to get there. But that was the first time I realized that that was even a career. And so I got the chance to have dinner with Grant Cardone about three weeks ago. And I told him that story that, hey, 19 years ago, you had a bigger influence on me than than you'd expect and it is just such a a neat moment for it to have come full circle like that
1: i'm reading his book right now sell or be sold and did you um, are you interviewing him for your podcast
0: yep he'll be a guest coming up
1: oh he's fabulous he is a he's a no-nonsense powerhouse
0: yeah and a, and a real genius too
1: Yeah, you can see that when you read the book. I mean, I'm just, it's riveting, you know, like, there's just no fluff. Everything he says is like, you can stop and say, this is a game changer. That's exciting, man. Now, did you ever dream of what you wanted to be when you were a little kid? What you wanted to be when you grew up?
0: I did. This is going to be almost laughable, but I remember being in middle school, and we were living in the Milwaukee area at the time. And I remember seeing the nicer cars on the street and seeing the nicer homes, and I didn't know how people got those cars or got those homes, but I knew that they were in business. I mean, what a generic term, right? So I remember being in middle school, telling everybody, "When I grow up, I'm going to be a businessman." And I, I remember daydreaming about it, and I didn't know what that was. You know, such a generic term. Um, but I just thought, hey, you grow up, you become a businessman, and you'll be successful. And that was kind of the earliest memories that I have of knowing what I wanted my life to kind of look like. Obviously, it took an awful lot of twists and turns since then. And matter of fact, when I picture back then what I pictured growing up compared to what I am now, it's total opposite. But nonetheless, that was the first time that I kind of got that taste or that urge to grow up and do something.
1: you, you, You lived into that dream. It's quite interesting. Now, I had a question that you actually answered, and while you were answering it, I had a big smile on my face, because the question was, did you like school? And <laughs> and your answer made me very proud of you, because it's the answer you get from many successful entrepreneurs, that the school system was like a straitjacket for them. And it was out in the real world, where they're Full genius came to um, to blossom,
0: yeah, and it was really tough for me to to not like school because I came from a family where schooling and college and academics and even military service was the only way to go, so to speak. you know, i hey I don't care what you want to do in life as long as it takes the path of serving at a Military school as an officer, getting a great education and then going and doing something. You know, my grandpa was a, a very decorated individual um, in the, the military. And my father went to um, West Point and then Kings Point. And my uncle, his only sibling, went to Annapolis. And, you know, they're all officers. And they went on to have great professional careers that they thought came from the schooling. And even back in high school, even back in middle school, I... Did not like class. I did not like homework. I did not like that style of learning. I was always, you know, wanting to be out in the real world, trying to learn through doing and through replicating. And at a very young age, I had that urge in me. So that was a real struggle for me because I felt like I was doing something wrong by not following in the family footsteps.
1: Did you do any military service at all?
0: No, none at all. No, and back then I. I had zero interest in it whatsoever. Now, uh, as an older adult, I wish I had, actually. I wish I got to experience that. Um, but you just could not convince me of it when I was 18 years old. I wanted nothing to do with it.
1: Mm-hmm. I love it. <laughs> it's um, You're a, a man right after my own heart. <laughs> what, what attracted you to banking?
0: The money. So here's a funny story. I remember I had dropped out of college and I was working at that car dealership. And I was doing really well. As a matter of fact, I only sold cars for about three months. And in my fourth month, I was already the top salesman out of all everyone there. You know, here I am, like 19, 20 years old. And they had an opening in the finance department. And in the finance department, it's just more sales. It's selling loans. It's selling rates. It's selling warranties. It's selling all these aftermarket products. And I all had instantly fallen in love with selling. And I wanted that position in the finance department. So I applied for it. I talked my way into it and sure enough, got it in my fourth month. And then obviously I I, I knocked it out of the park in in the finance department as well, became the top salesman there. And the head of that department ended up leaving several months later and that opening was available. And I remember talking my way into that opening as well based off my numbers and my ambition. And I remember the owners of the dealership literally sat me down. They're like, you're not ready for this. You're too young. The other you know, people here aren't going to respect you because you're too young. You got to pay your dues. And I thought, BS, you know, there's no dues to be paid. The best man gets the job. And somehow I weaseled my way into it and ran that department and had a, a great time doing it and continued to sharpen my business skills and sharpen my negotiation skills and, and sales skills. And then the mortgage boom started to happen. And I remember I had a lot of friends my age that We're getting into mortgages and making a killing. And to me, it just seemed like the next logical evolution of, hey, I want to go make even more money and I get to wear a suit. So I went and I applied for a job with um, HSBC Bank. They were called something different back then, but HSBC, the second largest bank in the world. And it was as a loan officer, selling mostly mortgages. Matter of fact, subprime back then. And I was in the interview and the gentleman interviewing me, his name was Todd. And Todd said, Hey, I know we had this interview scheduled. I actually um found my person yesterday, you know, but I'd love to go through with the interview and and keep you in mind in case another position comes open down the road. And by the end of the interview, I said, Screw the other person. I'm your best guy. Here's why you're gonna choose me. Not so much in those words, but that was the, the theme of it. And I remember Todd called me the very next day and he said, You know, I really did have somebody else picked out, but I can't deny that you're the one that I want in the position. So he hired me. And that was my that was my foot in the door into that bank. And I just I loved doing it. I had fun with the sales side of it. I'm really competitive, so numbers drive me. I'm obsessed with numbers. And I flew up through the ranks. I, I quickly became number one in the office and number one in the district and then number one literally in the U.S., And and that's out of, you know, thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of loan officers. And then I got my own branch and then I got another branch and then I got a district. And by the time I left there, when the big recession hit, um, I was a senior vice president overseeing countless offices and countless people in all forms of lending.
1: What I love about what you've been talking about, two things really stand out for me. Number one, you didn't succumb to other people's stories about the way to do things. You didn't wait for somebody to give you permission and say, now you're ready. You decided on your own that you were ready. And the other is to have the posture and confidence to follow through on that. And those are big, big lessons for anyone listening today. Fabulous, fabulous story. So why were you successful but unfulfilled in banking?
0: So here's what starts to happen to a lot of people in life. You enter a career doing something you love. Because you love it, you do real well at it. Because you do real well, they then promote you into another role and another role and another role and another. And before you know it, you wake up one day and you are so far away from doing what you actually loved doing in the beginning because of all the different promotions and all the changes that you're no longer happy, you're no longer fulfilled. And it was a combination of that combined with the Great Recession that hit. And that took the entire career from a really positive developmental career where we're driving numbers and having fun to instantly turning off the faucet. Nobody qualified for anything. And I spent over a year just flying around, shutting down offices and and letting people go, sitting there one by one saying, you know, I'm very sorry to tell you this today. We're closing down your office and I want to tell you about your severance package. And that became the lowest, most miserable point of my life probably. Um, I remember being tired and gained weight and it took a toll on Lori and I, Lori being my wife. And something had to change. And then finally... They came to me after about a year of flying around, doing you know, closing down all these offices and being miserable. They said, hey, it's your turn. We would love if you'd stay with us, ride this thing out, and take a demotion managing a branch in Jersey. Now I'm in Minneapolis at the time. Or you can have your executive severance package. And I said, I'll take the severance package. And they said, well, wait a minute. Don't you want to think about it? Don't you want to go home and talk to your wife about it? I said, nope. I said, this sucks. I'm out of here. What what am I getting? <laughs> And so that's how I got out of HSBC and then took a partnership with the very same Todd that I told you about before that hired me into HSBC. He mm-hmm. had left that bank um, a couple of years prior to the recession and started this tiny little mortgage brokerage. And it was kind of fledgling. It was just kind of there, barely existing, few guys. And he called me the day that I got, that I took my servant's package and he said, hey, I I heard that you got laid off. I heard you took your severance package. I said, God, how would you hear that already? He said, well, word travels quick. But I would love for you to come and partner up with me here and help me grow this thing. Because Todd and I had very opposite personalities, very opposite skill sets. And I knew what he was capable of. He knew what I was capable of. And we knew it kind of filled each other's gaps. So sure enough, I went and I, I took that partnership in a very junior role. And we went on to grow that mortgage bank. From, you know, a small room full of a couple of guys to 36 months later at the tail end of the recession, we're doing over $330 million in loans. And we took it from a mortgage broker to a mortgage bank where, you know, you're lending your own lines of credit. The problem is, despite that success, number one, I wasn't making the money that I wanted to make. Always reinvesting back into the the business. And, you know, Todd was a senior partner and and, and kept the majority of it. And number two... um, I just didn't enjoy it. I wasn't having fun. I I just, I didn't enjoy, I'm going to be very frank. I didn't enjoy the industry. I didn't enjoy a lot of the people I was working with. They didn't resonate with some of the aspirations I had for this positive, healthier, um, more aspirational life. And so I knew I needed to get out of there. And it was when my wife's brand finally started to take off a little bit. And when we found network marketing, then that was starting to show a pretty positive trajectory. Lori and I sat down. And we said, look at the trajectory of these two things. If I left, I think that together we could really do well on this. And sure enough, that's what we did. I pulled out and joined forces with Lori, and it's been a pretty awesome rocket ship ever since.
1: You know what's great? The more you speak, I realize you have always followed your heart, and that is really very powerful. Now, how did you actually meet Laurie?
0: Lori and I met at a gym in Green Bay, Wisconsin. She had just moved back to Green Bay. Um, you know, she spent the first few years of her life um, partying pretty hard, having extra fun, as did I. And so she woke up one day and she's like, I'm not in a good situation. I need to move home and, and get my ducks in a row. And so she had moved back to Green Bay to, quote, get her ducks in a row. And she was the new girl at the gym. Now, Green Bay is not a very big town, only 100,000 people. And so when somebody is new and attractive in Green Bay, you, you know that they've showed up and she walked in the gym and the guy at the front desk hit on her. And then another guy went up to her and hit on her. And, and I didn't know either one of these things had happened. And of course, you know, I, I wanted to meet her as well. So I remember introducing myself as we we're walking out that night, we happened to be parked next to each other after our workout. And I said, Hey, you're new here. And she looked at me and she said, yep. And got right in her car and left. I mean, totally cold. It wanted nothing to do with me whatsoever. And I thought, man, what, you know, what a, what a B word. <laughs> so I immediately kind of dismissed her based on, on that first interaction, but we kept seeing each other at the gym. And, um, it wasn't until maybe a month after that, I, as she tells the story now, she felt kind of bad about the first interaction that we had. And, and she had come up and finally said hi to me because we kept seeing each other at the gym, and just kind of became friends first. Of course, I always had ulterior motives,
1: mm-hmm. and,
0: but I was willing to you know, get my foot in the door however I could, became friends first, and I eventually wore her down, because I am a persistent son of a gun.
1: <laughs> I love that story. Now, when Lori was at the gym, was she doing some other kind of work? Because uh, I think we should share with our audience that your wife is a professional fitness model.
0: Yeah, you know, she's had to, uh, tons of success. She's had over 10 different magazine covers and, and her brand that she has now is a huge multi-seven multi seven figure brand and, and she's just killing it. And she's really went from fitness and turned it into self-development because that was the side of fitness that she liked the most, was dealing with the mindset. The body's never going to get right if you don't fix the mind first. Mm. But back then, to answer your question, she had no idea that, that was a career that she wanted to take. Remember, she was just partying and wanted to get her life back in order. And so it wasn't until well into our marriage that she started to figure out that this was a career that she wanted to pursue. Um, It was my fault because once we got married, I I kept getting promotions. And uh, so I'd move her to another city. I'd say, go pick out a house, fill it. I'll be back in a while. And I'd jump on an airplane. And then a year later, I'd move her to another city. I'd say, go pick out a house, fill it. I'll be back in a little while. And that was (laughs) looking back, that was not a good way to live. But that was the the facts of life at that moment and it wasn't until so she never really got a chance to get a career going and it wasn't until the recession hit and I came home and I said babe you know first first I took $150,000 pay cut I'm like hun, this is bad news then several several months later I took my severance package and I said all right babe I lost my job we have to sell everything and we have to start over because we were living way beyond our means because I was young And thought that this would last forever. And so I said, Babe, we got to sell everything. We got to totally start from scratch and we've got no money coming in. And she said, Whoa. And that was her wake up call to start contributing. That was her wake up call that maybe she needed to find a career that she loved and could be successful in so that we would never have all of our eggs in one basket again. And that was the catalyst that she needed to become the the juggernaut that she is today
1: so did she begin as a personal trainer
0: she did um i remember well actually she she went she got certified as a personal trainer and she started training at this big box gym it's a big chain across the u.s and they paid six dollars per half hour session yes a whopping twelve dollars an hour if you could get back-to-back sessions And we look back at it as laughable now. But that's where she sharpened her teeth and learned how to train people. And and it wasn't more than six months into that when we said, this is ridiculous. Like, we could just do this on our own. So we leased a warehouse space. We built it out as cheaply as possible. And she started her own fitness studio. And the fitness studio went on to become more and more successful. And we also realized a lot of the women that she was training can only train once, maybe twice a week whether it was finances or time, how else can we help them and receive more money at the same time? And that was the birth of her monthly workout plan that still exists today called Body and Soul. And um, it was between her training those people and and starting this online monthly workout plan that her business really started to take off and turn into something that was really fulfilling and exciting for her.
1: This is a great story. There's so many things I did know about you guys, but so many that I didn't. And this is just very, very rich. Now, you mentioned uh, casually before that, you know, she was involved in network marketing. You sat down and you kind of decided to partner with her. But I know that there's much more to that story, that your transition into network marketing wasn't a smooth and easy one. Can you want to talk about that?
0: For sure. It's actually a great story. So um, we started using these network marketing products for about a year. And first of all, Lori said, nope, I'm not trying these stupid products. I only believe in clean eating. And it wasn't until she was getting ready for a fitness competition and her body stopped responding to the normal way of, quote, clean eating that she would always do. And she went to a fitness competition and was expected to win and instead totally bombed. So I remember she came home and she was crying and she's like, I don't want to do this anymore. It's too much work. And the woman who had been asking her to try these products, she saw her the very next day and told her the story. And her name was Holly. And Holly looked at her and said, for the love of God, I've been asking you for almost a year to try these products. Just try them. What does it hurt at this point? And because Lori was at a low point, she said, fine, whatever, I'll try it. And she signed up for this package. And she came home and told me, hey, Chris, I signed up for this package. I'm going to try this stuff that Holly's doing. And I had seen Holly have a lot of physical success on it. But I remember I looked at Lori and I said, you're not spending our money on that stupid stuff. Like, I just thought network marketing and anything involved with it was fake and desperate and, and weird and for for people that are falling for something. You know, you don't know what you don't know. And Lori looked at me and she said, well, my body, I need a change. I'm doing it anyways. So a week into her using the products, I went from being the skeptical husband to seeing such a difference in her mentally and physically that has kind of tucked my tail between my legs and said, all right, babe, sorry, I said you can't get that. I would like to try it too. So we both go on to use the products on a daily basis for a year and we love it. We get in the best shape of our lives. I lost 30 pounds because, um, you know, I'd gained all that weight from when I was miserable in corporate America and everything physically was amazing, but we still had our walls up about the idea, the business side of network marketing. And so people would come to us and they say, wow, you guys look amazing. What are you doing? Or You know, Chris, you look so much better. What'd you do? And because we had our walls up about network marketing, we'd literally lie. I mean, I'm not proud of this, but we'd we'd leave it out of the equation. We'd say, oh, we started doing extra walks at night or extra runs on the weekends or two-a-day workouts. We would give every reason that we looked better and felt better except for the products that we're using. And we all know that the way you look and feel is 80% nutrition, yet we're leaving that part out. (laughs) And it wasn't until a combination of two things. Number one, me being so miserable in my partnership in that mortgage bank. I mean, really miserable. We knew something needed to change for Lori and I. And number two, one of Lori's girlfriends stopped her on a walk and she said, listen, I know you're doing something different. I heard you're doing something different. What is it? Because I'm dying over here trying to get this weight off. And Lori looked at her and she said, Yes, I'm doing something different. I'm so sorry to tell you. I wanted to tell you, but I was so afraid you were going to think I was trying to sell you or get you into this network marketing thing. But, you know, it's these products and they've absolutely changed our lives. And so <laughs> Lori or, or Jackie looked at Lori at this moment and she looked at her and she goes, you bitch. She goes, what kind of friend would let another friend sit here and struggle knowing that you had something that was working all along. And this was like this massive aha moment for Lori. I remember she came home that night. She was all excited to tell me something. She said, Chris, I got to tell you what happened today. Jackie sat me down. And she said, how dare you let me struggle when you've got something that works. And she said, I think we need to start doing this business. I think we need to share these. You're miserable. What does it hurt? And I looked at her and I said, nah, I'm not doing network marketing. But I'll tell you what. If you want to go share that with some of your friends and, and make a little bit of money, then maybe I'll take it serious. As a matter of fact, I said to her, I said, if you can make my car payment that I was stuck in because I, I was upside down in the car loan. I literally couldn't get out of the car loan. The car was not worth what I owed on it. So I said, if you can make my car payment, then I'll, I'll consider this. A couple months go by. She makes my car payment. She's all excited. She's like, look, this actually works. I said, no, 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 no. I, I moved the finish line. I said, if you can pay for our monthly apartment payment. Then then I'll take it serious. So three more months go by, she makes the monthly apartment payment, and she's like, see, it works. I'm like, no. I'm like, I'm not doing this. If you can make five grand a month, then I'll take it serious. Three more months go by. She makes five grand in one month. And she sits me down. And this time she doesn't ask me if I want to do it. This time she looks at me and she says, Chris, you're either a part of the solution or you're a part of the problem. Which side are you going to be on? And it was with that ultimatum and that deep knowing in my gut that I actually wanted this to work because I was so miserable. I said, all right, babe, I'll do this with you. I'm in. And she said, good, because I'm dragging you to an event. And that's where we're going to go learn how to do this. And we came home from that event. I remember on the airplane looking at her and saying, oh, babe, we are going to crush this. And we never really looked back from there.
1: This is after the event, right?
0: Yep, right after the event.
1: Wow, that that is fabulous. Okay, you made a decision, you were excited, and you were in. But I'm willing to bet that you still had to do a mindset shift in order for you to fully embrace and fully fall in love with and succeed at network marketing. Am I right? And if so, can you talk about that?
0: I can. And it was a long journey um, of belief. Yeah, you know, I, I Now when I, I do my coaching, I always say, If you're not a 10 out of 10 in your belief for the products and the industry, you're not going to be successful. And I was probably a 5 out of 10 at first, and then a 6 out of 10, then a 7 out of 10, and so on and so on. And the way I became a 10 out of 10 was, number one, I went to as many events as possible. Because every time I was there, I would learn something new about the industry. I would learn something new about the company. But best of all, I would see the physical before and afters on the stage. I would meet the people. I would hear their stories. Same with the financial before and afters. And it was all of those examples, one after another after another, that slowly started to increase my belief, right? Seeing is believing. Um, Also, our own physical success just kept getting better and better and better and I ended up in the best shape of my life. And that fed into me becoming a 10 out of 10. Then um, Holly, who had gotten us started, she was having massive financial success and she was a good friend of ours. So that helped me become a 10 out of 10. But then best of all, I decided that I wanted to believe in it. I needed to believe in it for us to really get as good as we could possibly be in this industry. So I sought out my own evidence. I sought out my own propaganda. I googled things that would support the industry. I googled things that would be positive propaganda that would help me believe. I read the right books that would help me believe. I... Um, went to a couple of events outside of the company events to do my own investigating and you know build belief in the industry. And it was all of those things over a period of time that took me from I would never do that to I can't imagine not doing this.
1: Wow, that is really great. What you just described is that process of recognizing that Everything we do is based on a story. And why not make it an empowering story? And you set out to write the most powerful script for yourself to help you succeed. And it worked. So how, how would you describe the new view that you had of network marketing? If you were to talk to somebody today who knew nothing about it, and they said, what's so great about network marketing? What would come out of your mouth?
0: Well, here's what I love about it. It is the best way to learn entrepreneurship because there is little to no risk whatsoever, but the upside for income and the upside for educating yourself on business is sky high. It's limitless. And so, for example, if you are involved in a company where all you have to do is eat the products in order to be eligible to do the business, then that's food you'd be consuming anyways. So that eliminates the risk part, right? Now now I'm not risking anything. I'm not risking any capital. It's food I'd be buying, eating anyways. Now what's the upside? The upside is it teaches you sales. It teaches you leadership. It teaches you working as a group. It teaches you conflict resolution because the bigger the team you build, conflict is going to show up. It teaches you money management and budgeting, and it teaches you that when you have a business, you're earning revenue, not a paycheck, and part of that revenue needs to be reinvested into the business and self-development and you name it. It teaches you, it's like the best set of training wheels for entrepreneurship because there's, there's no time when you're really going to fall down big. There really isn't. But the upside, if you take it serious, is truly unlimited.
1: I agree. I agree. Um, it's life-changing. Now there will there are still individuals who may think they have no proof of it, but that's what they've been indoctrinated to believe. That the majority of people in network marketing are people, you know, in um, Purina checkerboard suits and slacks, <laughs> and uh, you know snake oil salespeople. Describe some of the individuals whom you've met and their backgrounds that you are in network marketing and people you look up to and really admire.
0: Well, I can start by summarizing the very first event I ever went to, the one where Lori said, good, I'm glad you're in because we're going to this event. The part of the story I left out is this. Um, I looked at her. Remember, my belief still was not there. And I had not done the self-development that I have done today. So I'm not proud of this. But I looked at her and I said, fine, I'll go to this event, but I'm going to make fun of people because I thought that I was going to see all of the weird flashing pins and horrible suits and, you know, desperate individuals that people think makes up network marketing. And so Lori said, whatever, just come along. And I got there and it was the exact opposite of what I thought I was going to go there and find I remember right away walking in and it was the best looking group of individuals, the healthiest group of individuals, people that were two feet in on self-development. It was doctors and lawyers and um, chiropractors and personal trainers and accountants, you name it. It was professionals that were believers in the product because it had changed them physically. But more importantly, they were professionals that were just sick and tired of the same old same old rat race that everybody else was participating in and they saw this as an opportunity to own their own business and get out of that rat race so i got there and i remember seeing all of these great looking professionals and realizing whoa these folks are just like me it's not what i expected to find um you know, I'd like to say I'm so glad I was open, but I wasn't open. I was just going because my wife told me to go. But nonetheless, thank God I went or I wouldn't have realized who really participates in the network marketing profession. And I guess the bad reputation comes from two things. For anyone who says, eh, I don't know. You know, I've only had a couple bad experiences with it and so that's what I'm judging it with. Hey, that was me. But the bad reputation comes from really a couple things. Number one, it's the only industry in the world where whether you're qualified or not, everybody gets to try. Think about that. There's no interview. There's no barrier to entry. There's no show me your resume or have you had training to do this? Unfortunately, everybody in the world gets to try. And so that means the talented, classy people will try, but also the non-talented or non-classy individuals will also try. And when they try and don't succeed, sometimes that's what causes some of the bad reputation out there. Number two is that it's an industry that really cha- that that really changes you from the time you get in to the time that you become successful in it. It's really a it's less of a business and more of a self development journey that happens to have a paycheck attached to it. And so when people get in and dip their toes in it and get out. They really haven't had the self-development or the training in order to put their best foot forward and leave a good impression. It's the people that get in and say, okay, I'm going to treat this like a real business and I'm going to give it a fair you know, one-year shot or two-year shot or three-year shot before I, I leave. Those are the individuals that get the training and the self-development to really represent the industry in a, in a positive light. And then lastly, I'd say this. The industry is no different than any other industry. It's going to have the majority of people are good characters. But then there's going to be some bad actors. And sometimes those bad actors are the loudest, unfortunately. You know, whether it's the NFL, majority good dudes in there, but there's a few bad actors or the NBA or, you know, look at doctors. The majority are are great human beings, but there's some bad actors that you see in the news every once in a while. There's not a single industry that is immune from the bad actors. And the bad actors, unfortunately, are the ones that get all the press.
1: You know, that is one of the most lucid and well-grounded explanations I've ever heard uh, describing the network marketing profession. It's wonderful. It's important knowledge to put out into the world. How has network marketing affected your marriage?
0: Oh, I love it. So, pardon me. It has grown, it's helped our marriage grown in so many different ways. And that is when you own and work a business together, some of the positive things are this. It's great to have a common goal. It's great to be able to dream together. It's great to have wins and and success together and reasons to celebrate together. All those things are the obvious that improve your relationship. The less obvious things that improve your relationship are things like learning how to work together, learning how to communicate better, how each one wants each other to communicate with each other, Um, learning how to deal with finances together, learning how to Play to your strengths and trust the other person to play to their strengths instead of watching over them or double, du- you know, double checking their work. It's those things that are less obvious but far more beneficial to a relationship, because there are way too many relationships out there where they're never forced into a situation where they have to learn how to communicate each- with each other, and they wake up one day and they say, "Why have we become strangers? Or why do we resent each other?" You know, they're not forced into a situation where they have to learn leadership together and playing to their strengths. Because one goes off to his job and one goes off to her job and, you know, away they go. So for all of those reasons, it's made our marriage much, much stronger.
1: You know, Chris, you've just described a business that will make you exceptionally healthy, will make you exceptionally wealthy, and encourage and enrich your love relationships. You know what I have to say to that? That sounds too good to be true. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> oh, that's fabulous. I just love it. Why did you start a podcast called For the Love of Money?
0: Uh, I started For the Love of Money because I'm tired of this class war that we hear so much about right now, where people look up to those who are successful or wealthy and say, you're greedy or you must have screwed someone to get there or, you know, all these old sayings that we grew up with about the rich being evil. And I also saw way too many entrepreneurs, way too many entrepreneurs that had the talent, had the know-how, but had way too many limiting money mindset beliefs to maximize their talent and maximize their know-how. You know, they, I I could list a 1,000 people that have the ability to make a million bucks a year. They have everything it takes. But unfortunately, their self-worth, their money mindset has them capped at 100 grand or capped at 50 grand. And it was all of those people that I wanted to reach to help them become unapologetic about their pursuit of wealth and unapologetic about the fact that they want to both have nice things and help other people at the same time.
1: That is great What have you learned about yourself by doing the podcast and exploring the kinds of questions that you do? Oh,
0: man, Um, lots of things. Number one, I've had to budget my time even better. You know, it's it's a hungry baby, right? So it's a whole brand within itself. Um, I've learned just how much I love talking. And I kind of already knew this, but I love talking entrepreneurship. I love talking business. So I get to have conversations like this day in and day out. But it's confirmed how much I enjoy doing that. Um, I've had to learn a lot about, you know, marketing yourself as a brand. And and luckily we kind of sharpened our teeth on that through Lori first. So I was able to borrow a lot of those lessons, but at the end of the day, running a a podcast, I think the number one key is this, and, and you do this very well, by the way, set up questions that are well thought out and then give the other person the space to talk as freely and as long and make whatever point they need to make. There's too many podcasters out there where they keep interjecting or they, they interrupt or anything like that. And that's when it starts to become awkward or, or not come off very well. And, and that's one thing you do very well. You come up with excellent, well-thought-out questions, and then you give the other person the space to deliver whatever message they need to.
1: Thank you very much. I think you may also have learned some things, maybe surprisingly, about the fact that as successful as you were, there may have been some limiting money uh, beliefs that you needed to work on.
0: Well, they they say that you teach what you need the most, right? And one of the things that's really interesting is I've never had a problem having a a high net worth desire, um, wanting lots of wealth and success and, and money. Like, I was always driven by that. The thing that I had a problem with was... I was always being apologetic about it or I was always kind of afraid to share it or I was always afraid to really tell people what I wanted to do or really tell people what we were accomplishing. You know, you you kind of play smaller, you, you water down the story because you're afraid of making somebody else uncomfortable when instead, instead of worrying about making them uncomfortable because of your success, you should be worrying about whether or not you're inspiring them with your success. And so that's, One of the the journeys that I've gone on as I've been able to interview all these individuals is it's helped make me, which is my goal for everyone else, equally unapologetic about being successful, being driven. Because like my tagline says, when good people make good money, they do great things.
1: Mm, I love that. How are network marketers improving the world?
0: Here's what I like about it. Number one. It teaches people who might have never dipped their foot into entrepreneurship. It teaches them that they're capable of it, and it shows them a whole new lifestyle. And the more people that we can free up, so to speak, from a job they don't like or a financial situation they don't like, the better off the world's going to be. Also, network marketing, when done correctly, is nothing more than sharing something that really worked well for you. And the financial piece of it encourages you to share more and more and more, whereas maybe you wouldn't share as much. So imagine if I had something that makes you you know, much more energetic and much more fit. Eh, I might tell you about it if you ask me about it, if I did, wasn't network marketing. But because I'm in network marketing and I have that, I'm always now on the lookout for somebody I could share that with who needs it. So that many more people are being introduced to solutions that they wouldn't otherwise be introduced to. And when you look at that on a large effect, you know the snowballing effect of two people turns into four, turns into eight, turns into 16, 32, 62, and so on, it doesn't take very long for good news to start snowballing and touch a lot of people that need it.
1: Yeah, that is definitely one of the most powerful benefits. What about the fact that it's a level playing field where race has nothing to do with it, gender has nothing to do with it, and age has nothing to do with it. You can't find successful network marketers who are there because of nepotism.
0: Well it's very true. It's when you say it's an equal playing field, I love this because sometimes people will say, Oh well you have a large audience. So it's easier for you to become successful. What they don't they only know us now. What they don't know is when we started network marketing, I started Facebook at the same time, the exact same day, basically. So I had no audience. And I certainly wasn't looked at as any kind of self development or fitness expert at the moment. And same with Lori. Lori did not have any of her magazine covers yet. She did not have, she had nothing more than her tiny one on one training studio. And that was it. And so it truly is a playing field, an equal playing field for anybody that is willing to be consistent, for anyone that is willing to learn. For anyone that is willing to put in the hard work, because it does take hard work to be really successful, Um, but there's nobody who can't succeed at it if they're willing to do those things.
1: Yes, absolutely. Has there been a shift in your values as a result of creating wealth? You know, the more successful that we get,
0: the more of a drive we have to give. I'll, I'll give you one very intimate example. Growing up, I loved cars, and I still do. And at first, I just wanted to become wealthy so I could have a great house and great cars and nice things. I call that the carrot, okay? So some people will feel guilty if that's what motivates them. Some people will judge others who are motivated by that. But the problem is this. If the carrot, regardless of what it is, is what gets you to get the machine going, right? The machine that creates all this wealth and revenue. If the carrot is what gets you to get the machine going, and then because you get the machine going so well, so strong, that all of a sudden you have excess wealth, and that excess wealth is what you then use to make other people's lives better, then who cares what the carrot was? Right. Who cares what got you to wake up, get out of bed in the morning and go create that machine that creates extra wealth so that you have so much overflowing out of your cup that you can't help but want to give it to other people. So that's one thing that I've learned in terms of how my values have shifted. The other thing is I truly have learned that you have a responsibility the more successful that you are to intentionally look for areas that you can make a bigger, bigger difference. And listen, I believe, you know, broke or rich Everybody can help somebody. Everybody can help somebody. But I'm just going to be frank when I say it is way easier to help way more people when you are wealthy. That's the bottom line, and you cannot argue with that. Even if you said, oh, what about like Mother Teresa? She, she wasn't wealthy, but she helped a lot of people. You know what? She was great at recruiting wealthy and influential individuals to donate and participate in her cause. So what did she need to be successful in the end? She needed money. And it might not have been hers, but she needed it. Every hospital, every charity, every institution, every college, every single thing that we say, hey, this is good for society, was built with somebody's donation or with money.
1: Absolutely. And what you just described is that beautiful place that a person can get to when they transition from um, surviving to thriving. And then all of a sudden, this new arena of contribution becomes part of the equation. And it definitely enriches the world. And I know that you are doing that. What is your favorite book?
0: Oh, that's a, a great question. I am an avid reader. I once read 30 books in 30 days, and that's what turned me into a reader. That was about two and a half years ago. I have a lot of favorite books for a lot of different reasons but my favorite book in general is one that I read once a year and it's called Tuesdays with Maury Tuesdays with Maury and it is one of the it's a true story one of the most beautiful stories about remembering what's really important in life and keeping yourself grounded and you know valuing the things that truly matter So I read that book once a year, and I recommend everybody reads it. But there's so many more besides that, right? There's The Alchemist that's so good, and I love biographies. So I love Richard Branson's um, Losing My Virginity biography. I love Elon Musk's biography. I love um, Arnold Schwarzenegger's Total Recall biography. I learn the most from the biographies of individuals who are doing what I want to do.
1: Mm. I love the fact that you mentioned Tuesdays with Maury. I know about the book, and it hasn't come up uh, in my conversations in a long time, and I know it's about a man who would visit his dying friend and and become inspired by the wisdom of this person who was not long for the world, correct?
0: That is absolutely correct. You Mm. have to, have to read it.
1: Mm. Everybody should. Thank you for that. What about your favorite quote? besides i want you to repeat the one that i think you it's your quote about good people doing good things
0: yes so you know the tagline for my podcast is when good people make good money they do great things when good people ma- when good people make good money they do great things i wholeheartedly believe that um boy another quote that i love i'm having a mind blank right now because there's so many of them out there i feel like Everyone's Instagram quote tiles have given me quote overload. <laughs>
1: <laughs> you know what? Yours is fine. It's a great one. I love it. Thank you. How can people contact you, Chris?
0: Ah, perfect. So you can find the podcast at For the Love of Money. that's F-O-R, ForTheLoveOfMoney.com, or on iTunes, and you can find me on Instagram at Chris W. Harder. Send me a message. I check my messages there. I don't get my Facebook messages because I get too many each day, so I've just given up. I've stopped checking. <laughs> but uh, on Instagram, Chris W. Harder or ForTheLoveOfMoney.com.
1: Beautiful. Any final thoughts for our storytellers?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, if I look back, I'm turning 40 this year, and I know it's not the biggest sample, but it's also not the shortest shortest sample of life either. And when I look back at the things that have made me the most happy in life. It's when I got to share in my success with somebody else. And actually, you asked for a quote before. I just remembered another one that Lori and I love. And that is, nothing has any value until shared. Think about it. Nothing literally has any value until shared. You, When you get a promotion, what do you want to do? You want to share it with a friend or a loved one. You, know, you can't wait to tell someone about it. When you get a new car, you can't wait to show it to somebody. When you, when you do something great, you know even though you're supposed to, some people say you got to keep it to yourself. I, I say forget that. I say tell people, share that you did something great because it's going to make you feel even better that you did it, and you're going to inspire other people to do it. So, everything you're accomplishing in life, everything you're doing, make sure you're sharing it with somebody because that's when the real value comes out of it.
1: Hmm. Do you know who said that? Who uh, is that a, a specific quote from an individual or is it just? I don't know. We picked it up
0: from somewhere else, but the minute we heard it, you know, nothing has any value until shared. I can't tell you how many times Lori and I talk about it because it's just spot on.
1: That is wonderful because it definitely resonates in your life. Now, we don't talk about earnings on this show, but I think it's good if people get an idea. Chris talks about creating wealth. He's not a theoretician who's read books about it. He's a man who's actually done it and doing it. Could you give us uh, a hint at the kind of money that you and Laurie earn?
0: It is not quite eight figures yet, and it is certainly not beginner seven figures. It's right mm-hmm. in the middle.
1: That is beautiful. That is beautiful. So you have created a true life of choice for yourself.
0: Yeah, we really have. And that's what it does create for you is a, a life of choice. People say, oh, money doesn't make you happy. I agree. Money is a magnifier. If you're a miserable jerk, it's going to make you a larger, miserable jerk. But if you're a happy person at the core and if you're a good, caring person at the core, it's going to make you way happier and able to care way larger.
1: You know, I believe a lot, and I think you do, too, in the energy that people communicate that tells us a lot about who they really are. And the energy that you communicate is centered, relaxed, and genuine. And that is a testament to how you've aligned your wealth with your principles as a human being. And I, I can't thank you enough, my friend. You are truly an inspirational person. I'd like to ask you, will you be speaking at your company's annual event in next month?
0: This is the first year that I'm not, um, which I'm kind of excited about. I love when I get to get up there and speak. You know, speaking in front of 15 or 20,000 people is a, is a rush. And I love being an educator. But I'm kind of excited to be able to be a participant without all of the work and rehearsals and all that stuff that goes into it. So it's it'll be a nice break for me to view it from the audience this time so I can be that much better of a teacher again the next
1: time. Thank you. Thank you so much. You've contributed uh, well, something priceless to my listeners that I affectionately call my storytellers today. Chris, thank you and thank you for your time.
0: Totally my pleasure. You did an excellent job of just giving me the gift of the space to tell the story. So thank you.
1: I received that. Thank you again, storytellers, for spending time with me and Chris Harder today. Today's show is very powerful, I think you will agree. Definitely pay it forward. Let people know that they can hear it on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, TuneIn Radio, and at the website ChangeYourStoryPodcast.com. Make sure that you download your free gift at the website, the ebook that I've created for you, Storytelling Secrets for a Rich Life and Business. Chris shared his passion and excitement for some great books today. One of them that stands out is Tuesdays with Maury. Take advantage of the offer from our sponsor, Audible, and download for free an audiobook of your choice, from more than 180,000 titles, and also get access for an entire month to all of Audible service for free. Simply go to www.audibletrial.com forward slash story power. I would love to know what you receive today from Chris. Send your messages to Louis L-O-U-I-S, at changeyourstorypodcast.com. I want to share something with you. Today, Chris Harder brought a level of authenticity, clarity, and brilliant mindset to you. He offered it to you in this podcast. If you're really open to it, it's a game-changer. It can actually change your whole quality of life or at least begin the process that would lead you to that change. Some of you will open yourselves to that and some of you won't. One of my mentors said this powerful thing once that I'll never forget. All pain comes from resistance. I want you to ask yourself this next week, What are you resisting? What are you resisting that, if you allowed, would take your life to a whole new level of enrichment? I challenge you to find the courage to go beyond your resistance. Begin by asking, how can I change my story and change my life?